The following is a production of PMA Magazine. Hey everyone, welcome back to the fourth episode of the PMA Podcast. We're so glad you're here. In case you're new, PMA stands for Positive Mental Attitude, and we focus on positive news about tremendous people doing great things for their communities or the world. PMA started as a print magazine in 2019, and you can learn more about us at our website, www.getthatpma.com. Now this week we want to change it up a little and bring you some shorter clips from interviews we did that we thought were really great, but because we weren't really thinking about doing a podcast at the time, they were either too short, super casual, kind of personal, or just recorded in really noisy locations. We still wanted to showcase these individuals, though, and get them into the time capsule that is this first season zero. Like I mentioned in episode two, this season is really a test. We want to figure out how podcasting works and learn more about how the medium can support the types of storytelling we specialize in. So today's episode is an experiment in variety, and we hope you enjoy it. Now, before we get started with our guests, which include Jennifer Loomis, Julie Merzwiak, and Tim and Beth Kerr, I want to introduce a segment called the PMA Playbook. The Playbook is something we've brought over from the magazine and is intended as a way to share actionable strategies for staying positive, even when life can make that practice pretty difficult. We can't be positive all the time. No one is. Negative thinking can even be important and useful, but we'll save that for a future chapter of the playbook. Today's playbook is about how empathetic storytelling can transform jerks into saints. Let me explain. People can sometimes really bug this shit out of me. Ironically, it's usually behavior that suggests a lack of empathy that gets me riled up, like cutting in line or talking loudly into a cell phone on a crowded bus. In situations where I encounter these atrocities, my coping mechanism has typically been to punish myself by getting upset, sometimes losing my cool, but regardless, the terrorists always win. And during my last stretch of gainful employment, I was fortunate enough to work for a company that provided a comfortable shuttle to and from work. Every weekday, I'd board the bus with 30 or 50 of my neighborhood co-workers, and we would roll like coal miners under the breach. Now, unlike the city bus, This shame train required reservations and therefore was filled with the exact same people every day. As a result, we became somewhat of a family. There was an email list for keeping in touch, and there were friendships forged while waiting in line or chatting on the trip. Years after I left that job, I still kept in touch with several of the folks I met on that bus. Now imagine that suddenly one of these people who you recognize and see every day is late and the driver has to wait for him to park his car and shuffle his ass onto the bus. Now, this is irritating, but we're a tight family of co-commuters, so no problem. Then it happens again the next day. Except this time, he doesn't try as hard to do that fake running thing people do when they're crossing the street in front of your car. Then the following day, he's even more behind schedule, and again and again for almost two weeks until eventually a chorus of collective groans develops when his car rolls into the parking lot while we're all sitting there on the bus waiting for him. At this point, my lack of empathy meter is starting to peg into the red zone, and my internal narrative starts to throw presumptuous punches. Who the hell would hold up an entire bus of his coworkers, his commuter family? Just because he can't get himself to the bus stop in a timely fashion? This isn't the only bus, so if he needs to go in later, he should catch the next one. What kind of a person would be so oblivious? Who does he think he is? Wait, that's a great question. 
who do I think he is? I don't know if it was divine intervention or just an extra cup of coffee that morning, but I realized that I didn't know jack shit about this guy, and more importantly, why he was suddenly a chronic tardy person. Maybe there were some extenuating circumstances that were outside of his control that were causing him to have to fight his way to work every morning. Perhaps it wasn't his fault, and he was actually ashamed of the fact that he was constantly holding us up. There was a world of possible causes for this situation, and for some reason, I was assuming my own made-up version of the story was the true one. Instead of actually asking the guy what was up, because that would be too direct, I decided to make a story up in my head for why he was late every day. After all, it didn't really matter. In fact, if I could uniquely satisfy my own selfish hang-ups by crafting a narrative that shaped this person in the image that I wanted, then I might be able to almost completely remove the stick from my butt, which would definitely make my ride to work more comfortable. So, in my version of the world, Mr. McLaterson became a really sweet new dad who just welcomed a darling new baby into the world. He and his partner had been trying for a while, and they finally were able to have a child, which is something that they had always dreamed of. Even though being a new parent is very challenging, lately this new child started teething and was keeping them up all night. But being a good partner, he was taking on his share of the duties and was up and down at all hours of the night. It was all he could do to keep his shit together and get out the door at all in the morning. Once I established this new narrative, I saw him in an entirely new light. I looked forward to seeing his VW Golf speed into the parking lot right before the bus was about to leave. When the driver reopened the already closed doors to let him slink into the last available seat, I smiled at him as he glanced across the rows of furrowed brows. He made it! What a great guy! What a dedicated father! My mornings instantly improved, and I was no longer starting each day irritated. I realized that by being upset, I was actually crafting an unflattering narrative for this guy impulsively. Why would I do that? This new way is so much better. I started to do this anytime someone bugged me and began to really be amazed by how well it works. Someone just cut me off in traffic? Well, they must have just received an emergency phone call about their house being on fire. Will someone please let that nice dentist in the BMW cut in front of them? About three months later, something incredible happened. I was in the grocery store gathering provisions for an epic taco night when suddenly a toddler went running by me in the beer aisle headed straight for the fish counter. Before I could even think to turn around, the guy who I had imagined to be the father of the century came bolting after him with a one-ish year old in his arms, shouting, please come back here. And he stopped, looked at me with that familiar glance you give to people you've been sharing a bus with for years but have never talked to, and said, can you please watch my cart while I chase down my boy? He's a runner. I said, of course, and glanced back at his cart, which contained, wait for it, another baby. This poor guy must have really wondered why I was so happy to meet him after all this time. I introduced myself to his family, who were definitely puzzled and rightly cautious. Of course, I could not reveal the scale of my vast neurotic conspiracy to give their father the benefit of every doubt, but I was so goddamn pleased with myself, I almost hugged him. I couldn't, though, because, you know, he was holding a small child. So next time someone does something that irritates you, observe them until you find a detail that gives you a starting point for your empathetic yarn. Then, instead of stewing on how inconsiderate this person is, spend that same energy making up a story that gives them the very best excuse for being a jerk. Don't be afraid to be creative, but ultimately it should be a believable scenario, unless you give them a pass for being possessed by an alien. 
assume it's true, and move on. Because you never know. It might be. And you might actually be an asshole for thinking otherwise. Well, that's our first entry into the PMA playbook here on the podcast, and I really hope you enjoyed it. Now, really quick, before we get into these incredible interviews, which are going to be really special, I wanted to remind you that PMA is also a beautiful print magazine full of art, photography, and stories about people just like you who are trying to use their time on this planet to really make a difference. We try to tell their stories in a way that highlights how exceptional they are, but at the same time helps us all realize that at the core, we're really all the same, and that all it takes is an inspiration and a lot of hard work, and you can achieve whatever you set your mind to. You can subscribe to our magazine, pick up a t-shirt, or check out some of the videos and other fun media we've created at our website, www.getthatpma.com. Your purchases really make it possible for us to produce this podcast, print the magazine, and keep the lights on, so we really do appreciate it. Okay, our first interview segment today features Jennifer Loomis, a Seattle photographer who pioneered a new genre of portraiture that focuses on the pregnant female body as a way to help women celebrate the transformation that happens when they have children. But in a twist of fate, upon the sad loss of her beloved dog, she discovered an entirely new calling. But I'll let Jennifer explain. I mean, the flashpoint for me was, um, this is the whole kind of nut of the story, right? Like I was told in 2010, I couldn't have a kid, right? So I closed everything. My book had just come out. I was just like, all right, I was devastated, whatever, you know, it was cry, cry, cry. And, um, and my dog died. Um, I started looking at dog dogs online and the photos were amazing, you know, to the point where the dog would be like mangy and nasty when you'd go see it. But like the photo made it look like a great dog. And then I was like, all right, well, maybe I need to adopt. Maybe I should adopt a kid, right? Maybe I should adopt a kid. So I started to look up children and thinking about adopting children. I was horrified at how horrible the pictures were. I couldn't believe it. I couldn't see the soul of these kids. Like the dogs, I could see their soul. The kids, I couldn't. That's great. Well, I mean, it, it gets into red tape and, you know, the state wasn't very backwards thinking. They've changed that a lot since what we've done. Right. But... Um, and so I, I emailed the first person site that came up and said, you know, I can help. And that was in 2013. And it just so happened that the person who picked up that email was a really inspired young intern at Northwest Adoption Exchange who was, went on to go to law school at Columbia. And she was like, yeah, why can't we do this? And everybody was like, oh, we're so we're still, 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 yeah, time, right. blah, blah, blah. You know, and she, so we made it happen. And so all I did was, it doesn't take that much time if you're passionate about something, right? You're thinking about it all the time. There's a momentum. There's an energy. You're like, shit, I can do this. Yeah. So we did it. We did our first one, which is some of the photos are not that great, but we photographed uh, two over two days. We had a lot of people donate to it food and things we had a makeup artist come in and um and it was awesome awesome indeed once jennifer and her adopt-a-child photographers got to work they saw a 200 percent jump in click-throughs on the adoption website whenever their photos were used which is by any measure a huge success as jennifer told me more about her project i really understood why she was so dedicated to this cause 
In just a few minutes, she had done a masterful job at bringing me up on the dire need for helping these kids, and I could see immediately why she was so successful at rallying others around the project. I asked her to talk a little bit about what these kids were up against, and I'll warn you up front, while not graphic, the situations she describes are heartbreaking. I mean, every story is so different. Every story can be heartbreaking in its own way. I mean, just think of anything. Abuse, circle of violence, drug-addicted parents. I mean, sadly, if the state takes you away, it's already been pretty bad. And the kids that we photograph are called legally free, which means they have the parents have given up on legal control and they don't have an immediate family member that's going to step in. And you often see this with more um, lower income families. You know, I mean, the, the violence doesn't know, um, and abuse doesn't know socioeconomic status. It's just that the higher statuses have more veils that hide it, right? So same with drug addiction. So, and they have more resources and more family members might be willing to step up. But, you know, these, these kids are the most vulnerable of our society. And that's where I have to remind ourselves and myself, look, our gift is the photograph, right? That's all we can do. We can't solve their trauma. We can give them one fun day and a photo that's hopefully going to change their life. So that seems like a really important thing that people could learn from this, is that you scoping it to just, like, the, to what's realistic for you and for yeah. what you can actually do... The soup makes it possible, basically. Yeah, so you don't get paralyzed, right? Right. Because I think, you know, if you want to think about trying, how can I change the world? Well, that's a pretty paralyzing thought. But if you start and say, okay, what's my gift? My gift is capturing the soul of someone in a camera and being able to identify others who can do it too. And my gift is being able to rally people, right? Like if I'm passionate about someone, I can move mountains. So put those together and you have Adopt-A-Child Photography. One of the things I like to learn more about is how pro bono and volunteer work can actually provide fuel for professional revenue generating endeavors. Because sustainability is important, and if we can't feed our families, we can't continue to give back to our communities. So I asked Jennifer about that and how her work with Adopt a Child fed back into her business. Her answer wasn't what I expected. Well, I believe we all have to get, we all have our gifts, and you have to give back your gift. Like the, the, you know, you have a gift, you have to give it away. And that enables me to give it away. I mean, it's hard work. And I tell my photographers, I'm like, you are here to take photographs. We can't change the structure of society. We can't change the situation for a lot of these children. What you can do is give your gift. And your gift is making a great photo. And that great photo, hopefully, will connect to them with somebody who can change their life, right? So I think we all have to keep it. It's easy, I think, to get overwhelmed in social problems, but I think if you boil it down, and I think I have a quote on my Instagram, it's like, you know, we all have, life gives you a gift, you know, the purpose of life is to give it away. And I've always been a big believer that if you give more than you take, you're a very rich person. And you, if you get hung up on money and numbers, you've missed it. 
I want to thank Jennifer for letting me invade her photography studio to record this interview and for letting us share her story. You can read the full article and see some of her amazing photography in issue number three of our print magazine. You can find Jennifer on the internet at jenniferloomis.com. Now, our next segment is something I like to call the ride-along, which in law enforcement parlance is what they call it when a citizen goes out on patrol with a police officer to witness what really goes on out there. Now, we're using it somewhat liberally to describe a series of pieces that give our audience a peek under the hood at what it's really like to start a small business that a lot of people often fantasize about, like opening a bar on the beach in the Bahamas, which is something I'm still working on, by the way, or running an indie bookstore, or in this case, opening your own coffee shop. Julie Merzwiak isn't just an entrepreneur. She's a connector. She didn't just open a coffee shop that relatively quickly turned into a small coffee chain, but she did it in a way that's unusual, by focusing on community building. Her real fine coffee shops aren't just a place to grab a cup of coffee. They're where customers are treated like family, where they catch up on community news, see old friends, and walk away with a jolt of PMA with every cup. None of this is by accident. As you'll hear from Julie herself, this has always been a part of her plan. As I mentioned earlier in the season, none of these recordings were made with the intention of using them as a podcast, so there is some background noise, uh, but we've tried to clean it up as much as possible. My first question for Julie was how she got started on such an ambitious project. This is what she said. So I landed um, a, a job here in West Seattle, and I fell in love with it, and I fell in love with this community, mainly, of West Seattle. And I uh, crossed paths with this woman, her name is Maury, and uh, she and I connected immediately, and she ended up being my kind of a life coach, if you will, a mentor. And she was like, Julie, I think you would be an amazing entrepreneur. So she, um, she and I kind of dove down deep and tried to figure out what direction I should go. And I was like, well, you know, I love this community, and I know the coffee, you know, been in it long enough, and so decided to open up a coffee shop. Planted the seed for it anyway. Through Maury, I met a network of women who started this nonprofit called Rebellious Dreamers. And they, um, I applied for a grant with them to help fund my dream. And uh, they awarded me a $15,000 grant. And they were a bunch of women entrepreneurs um, helping other women along. So that's kind of how I got a, a boost, cool. you know. As I chatted more with Julie, it became clear to me how much Mo's mentorship meant to her. She referenced her contributions constantly. Mo sadly passed away since we recorded this, and our hearts go out to her friends and family, who are certainly still missing her very much. But her spirit of mentorship and supporting others clearly lives on in Julie's work, as you'll hear later. My next question was about how she manages to walk the thin line between business and personal affairs when they're so clearly and deliberately woven together. Here's what she said. You know, I ran, ran into a bunch of roadblocks trying to get this thing started. Um, and so I kind of took a step back and I was like, all right, maybe the only thing that needs to happen here is work on yourself. And so I dove deep and really kind of, not to sound woo-woo, but just healed some deep wounds and really released shit that no longer served me and just kind of like 
really learned some tools, I think, to stay grounded, stay centered. I picked up a meditation practice that I do daily. Um, and I think all of those things were preparing me for opening. And, and, and it, it was funny because once you start working on yourself and that's when things started happening and started rolling for me. And I believe that I needed to go through that to, like I said, gather the tools for my tool belt because this shit is fucking hard, man. It is hard and it is constant. It is never ending. And it's like, so I've always told myself that it's so important to, to maintain that being grounded, being centered, being, you know, keeping my feet on the planet, on the ground. Otherwise, if you don't have that, then you're, you can't get anything done then because yeah. you're just all over the place. It's not easy. I mean, I'm like, you know, I, I say that and it sounds all good and, you know, easy, but it's, 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 it's a hard, it's a hard thing. Ah, yes. The universal theme that's familiar to all small business owners, never ending work. Now let's listen as Julie talks about the importance of being connected and how connecting others is a core part of her philosophy. You know, like I just ran into a customer, a regular out in front when I was waiting for you and she just had the nicest things to say about my staff. You know, she's like, they make my day every single day. Just so you know, Julie, they are, they're part of my family, you know, and that to me, that fills me up. And so all the strife, all the bullshit that I have to deal with, that's the kind of stuff that fills me up. And like... And that's what it's all about for me, is right. building the community, connectedness. This world is so all about the phones and about, you know, you know, just being on your phone and being disconnected from, the, from this, you know? And so I think it's so important when people, it's not just a cup of coffee, you know? It's, it's about an experience and it's about, about connecting, <laughs> really, yeah. ultimately. Yeah. It's about connecting and the connections that you make. When... Uh, Lisa, who owns Capers, comes in and waiting for a coffee, and I have Miles, who just opened up a plant store in White Center, and I said, hey, Lisa, have you ever considered selling plants in your store in the junction? She said, actually, yeah, I was thinking of it. Hey, meet Miles. He has a plant store down in White Center. How about you guys talk something out? You know, it's, stuff like that happens all the time. Um, total strangers, you know, and, and I introduce them and then boom, there's a connection made, you know what I mean? Right. So that's what it's all about for me. Right. And it always has been from, from day one. Another thing Julie's focused on since day one is investing in people. Any small business owner will tell you that one of the most difficult aspects of running a business is finding and retaining good people, bar none. Julie has assembled a tremendous team across her organization and it was far from accidental. I wanted to create a good work environment for my people, for my braces, that I want them to enjoy going into work every day and make it fun. Yeah. And because I think that transfers over to the customers. Yeah. And I and building building a good environment that way. After doing this for a couple years, I find that I think I'm a really good role model for this next generation, the millennials. I try to, I try to be as positive as possible and let them know that they can do whatever they want. They can do this too. You know what I mean? And I feel like I've, I've done a 
pretty good job at that. Like these, it's been really fun to watch people who are really shy and kind of in their shell. And then they kind of, after working at Real Fine, they've really kind of come into their own and really, I can see their confidence level just like soar. And it's been just really tremendous. That's really, that's a huge payoff, you know, for me. Right. And she extends that practice not just to her employees, but to her partners as well. Well, I think it was really important for me to align myself with or partner up with like Herkimer, you know, my roasters. We share like-minded philosophies. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And so that was a really good launching pad for me. Okay, these guys are a good example of how I want to run my business, you know, authentically. Um, and I think that is really, I think a really key piece to it is to align yourself with like-minded folks and with anything, not just with business, but with, with life and, um, yeah, and trust. Yeah, exactly. And I think, um, I think that gave me the confidence that I needed to, um, sure that. That, that insecurity of, you know, oh, am I going to be good enough is always going to kind of be there. But then I have a lot more confidence because I, I like I said, I, I have a good posse, a good, a good team. Yeah. Or like Mo, Maury, Maury is Mo, by the way. We call her Mo. Um, she, you know, she calls it your kitchen cabinet. Like, you know, like in the presidency, they have your kitchen cabinet of people that are always going to have your back and you can always rely on and you know, all that stuff, so. I asked Julie how she knew whether or not she was doing it right, how she measured her success. This is what she said. If you look at all our reviews, like on Google and Yelp and Facebook or whatever, there's the common thread there is that we have amazing customer service and we have amazing product. So that's that's kind of how I set the, set the standard, I guess, is yeah. that, you know, like, you know, I have a very simple model, yeah. you know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a grill or I don't make sandwiches and all that crap. It's yeah. just, I have a product, a really good coffee product that you should really focus on yeah. and then also focus on customer service and building the community. So that's kind of how I preface it, I guess, from the get go. Keep it simple. Finally, I asked Julie, how important is maintaining a positive mental attitude? in her ability to run this incredibly demanding business. Guess what she said? You have to be positive in this in this thing. I mean, otherwise it's I believe that if you're if you're constantly thinking negative thoughts, only negative shit's going to come your way. You know you what I mean? That? Yeah. Okay. I believe that 100%. I mean, I'm again, my meditation back to my meditation and my gratitude every single day and I feel like when you have that as your center like being positive and being having gratitude in your life or you know what I'm saying being grateful um I think it comes back I want to thank my friend Julie Merzwiak for allowing me to put her on the spot for this interview she's a very humble person that isn't super comfortable talking about how awesome she is so it was actually a big honor and favor that she went for it you can read more about Julie in issue number two of PMA Magazine with some incredible photos from world-renowned photographer Lance Mercer. Or you can find her online at realfinecoffee.com. Okay, 
Now we're heading to Austin, Texas, to chat with our friends Beth and Tim Kerr in our final segment. I caught up with them at the diner in their local bowling alley in an attempt to crack their secret code to living a vibrant life of creativity, inspiration, and somehow being at the center of so many fantastic happenings. It turns out, you just need to be human. Now I have a bit of an inside track here because I've known Beth and Tim since the early 90s. But one of the many things I've admired about them is while their peers often felt ashamed or the need to downplay the fact that they had day jobs, that never seemed to affect Beth and Tim. As Tim put it, he always saw work like school. You just put in your time, and then after school, you go and do the other stuff that's more fun. But there's so much more to their story, and even though they're both finally able to commit 100% of their time to their creative pursuits, they seem busier and more successful than ever. So the first thing I asked them was how they managed to balance art and commerce, and this is what they said. See, I don't have to worry about them because it's the same thing with like when I recorded all through the night. There got to be a point where I could have quit my jobs and just recorded and probably made about the same amount, maybe a little bit more. But and I've never, and I still don't, I've never ever wanted to be in a situation where self, I was going to have to decide with self-expression about money kind of thing. Like I was going to have to be like, well, we really need money for the rent this, this month. And I, uh, okay, I'll do that metal band that I didn't really feel like I could contribute to and didn't really care about or whatever. Does that make sense? Like I just, I've, I've always made sure that I was in a position to where, and best part of it, I mean, not that I, you know, it was the big game plan to marry Beth and <laughs> but you know what I'm saying but I've just so, I've always I've always kind of tried to be in some sort of a position where I don't have money has nothing to do with what I'm doing right. myself as yeah I don't have to but choose. not going to turn it down either but you know it's just right. like you know I mean so, the, the riverboat gamblers right now are asking me to record them again and I said to them I said well uh, they said, well, what do you want? And I said, well, you know, I said, actually, what I'd like is whatever you would pay somebody else if you had your, you know, your position now. You know what I'm saying? Like, because I used to do it for free for them or whatever they could do. But the bottom line is, that even if they give me a dollar, I'd probably do it just because it's friends. And, you know, it's just like, it, it, it's just not. And he's never, I guess that's the point, is he's never been in a position where just getting paid a dollar Right. would make a difference. I mean, obviously, kind of when, when I would come to Seattle, like the first time I met you and all that stuff, it's yeah. like, yeah, if you want to bring me to, if you want me to come record you in Seattle, yeah, you're going to have to pay to get me there. But once I'm there, I'll sleep on the floor or whatever. It's just not that, you know, but I can't pay out of my pocket an airplane ticket to come and you're going to have to, you know, so it's, it's, you know, it's obvious things. Do you know people who are creative who always seem to be doing something relevant? I do. And it's amazing to me. So I asked Tim and Beth, how do they constantly find themselves in this position where what they're doing means something to somebody? This is what they said. I think if you do something because you think it's going to be important, then yeah, you defeated the you're in trouble. Right there. You know, it's like it's just that that seems really conceited, and that's just like I just am not. I don't want to have anything to do with that at all. It's just things I do, and this is you know, if somebody takes it, cool. You know, right. There's definitely people that don't. You know, there's other people that 
Somebody wrote something. On, somebody was posting one of the photos of a painting and was all excited about it. And somebody who I don't have a clue who it is was writing, oh, you just, what do you say, commodify or something? What was it? Oh, um, appropriate culture. Yeah, you're just appropriating culture, just, you know, kind of type thing. Exactly. It's like, you know, I'm celebrating culture. I don't really, you know, it's like, but whatever. It's right. like, I mean, I think they're, they're, point might have been that Tim's using other people's culture to sell his paintings and that's you know not at all what he's doing he's trying to make he's trying to make people aware of all these other cultures and the people that you know you know Cesar Chavez and Martin Luther King but you don't know Dolores Huerta Bayard Rustin or all the people that were back there supporting you know so he's seeking that out all the time so yeah, I think that argument was just, he was just trying to incite. Well, it also goes into that thing too. It's pretty funny that, you know, I've read that before that you can have, some jam. you can have red or purple. <laughs> purple. You can have, um, you know, 50, 50 people can like this magazine that you were getting ready to do. And you have comments and everything. And then the one person is just yeah. like, well, this is blah, blah, blah. You, human nature, you yeah. stick on that one thing right. instead of like, well, there was 50, 100 other people going, this is a great, this is right. Well, kind and of before just, Tim could ever even answer, there were plenty of people, you know, right. against that guy. Don't you, though, at some point, like, because you've had so much experience, realize that that's actually validating. But like, if that one naysayer wasn't on there, maybe like you're not making enough of an impact. Mm. Yeah, it's like a good thing to have that guy on there, right? Yeah, I mean any, that was the reaction is good reaction. Yeah, and it's I mean that punk rock showed you that, but uh, the, right, you know it's the whole thing of like. It wasn't until maybe a couple of years ago that people coming to shows have no idea about the music side of what I've been doing. And, you know, super honored about all the music and humbled and everything else, but it was kind of cool when people would say they liked something and you knew that they liked it because it was, you know, they actually liked it as opposed to, man, I love Poison 13 or you know, Monkey Ranch or whatever, you know, kind of thing. So they like this because of that, you know, kind of deal. So. Yeah. One of the special things about Beth and Tim is how they've opened their home to so many bands who've traveled through Austin to play shows. So much so that they have a shrine of sorts that stretches from floor to ceiling with objects that have been left behind by their notable guests. These days, Tim usually reserves a section in his art shows for the Friends Wall, which is a place where he showcases art by his friends and colleagues in the art world. It seems to always be about other people with these two, and I wanted to find out where this empathy was rooted. I mean, I'd say it was pretty eye-opening for me to go to punk rock shows every several times in one week, I'd say. We did that for 20 years, right? And just the variety <clears throat> the variety of people, you know, you wind up seeing the same people at the same shows all the time. Like, hey, what's going on with you? And learning about their lives that uh, had nothing to do with our lives because they were all like high school kids or recent college kids and we were already out of college before any of this started happening you know 
So it definitely was eye-opening for me to, to talk to all these people and find out about what their lives were like and, and what they were going through. And, you know, I'd be sympathetic, you know, but I'd always like really be interested in hearing their stories and, and what was going on. And you see them on such a regular basis, you kind of keep up with all of them. I mean, I, I guess at the end of the day, I think just thinking about me all day long is pretty boring. I want to hear all the other takes on life or backgrounds or histories. And the other thing, just like skating, like people don't really realize that back then, nobody was doing it for what it's become. No, we were just doing it because this is pretty cool, this is great, so fun. let's keep this going, you know, correct deal, but it wasn't like world domination, you know, or whatever, it's just like this, you were just part of this thing trying to keep it alive in your one little area and then you realize that there's other little areas doing it cool let's go there or bring them over here it's like maybe it's just this sinking and skating you know it's like oh we're going I mean, the first time we went to san francisco beth we talked all about it and beth wrote a thing to thrasher to kevin and mofo because it was just that fanzine about like this and it was it wasn't that hey we're coming we're a band, but, 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 but it was more like, hey, are there places to skate? There, let's go skate. Like, well, we're going to be in town. And, oh, yeah, we got a show, but let's go. When can we skate? You know, that's that's the main yeah. thing. <laughs> we're going to, you know, it's just like it was. And I mean, music, the, the music stuff was almost, especially back then, was almost secondary to what was going mm-hmm. on because it was just the community of it and all the whole. Self-expression of what was going on because everybody was doing something and it was cool. One of the things Tim is known for now is painting large-scale murals that celebrate current or historical figures from the community he's painting in. They're always inclusive as they often feature the words your name here somewhere. But Beth and Tim are also always keen to get on the phone and call down all their friends to come lay down some paint. In fact, it seems like anyone is welcome to help out when Beth and Tim come to town. So I asked, is painting the new rock show? It's almost like doing a show. You know, it's like if I if I came and wanted to do a mural in Seattle, I would have to kind of get with somebody, find a wall, all this, because I'm not doing it illegally, you know, kind of deal. So, but, um, you know, it's... I mean, I feel like I've come out of helping you do murals as every bit as sweaty and stinky and dirty as coming out of a rock show. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's very active participation. Right. And he, you know, he always says to our friends or whoever's around, like, oh, you can help paint. Well, yeah, because you're always trying to... Ladder. Well, the idea is that, uh, I mean, it kind of really hit home in, uh, when we did the thing in... in uh, Rosa Parks Museum thing, the, um, the mural there in Montgomery, because Rosa Parks' minister had come to the show and was talking to me and was telling me about all these different people that had uh, done stuff, you know, that people don't really talk about that are still there in the community and live and all this stuff. And so I got a bunch of names from him and then made a point of on that one mural of putting the names of the people he told me about because the idea was that now they can walk up there and you can be like, well, that's your aunt, that's your uncle, that's your grandmother, that's something which turns it into this, yeah. 
more of a community and it, it just you know I and as an example of like don't don't complain and sit on your butt your your grandma did this so yeah, emulate her or whatever right yeah as we were wrapping things up I asked Beth and Tim to give me an example of how positive mental attitude works into what they do well it's the idea that like every I mean, it's funny because when I was looking for coats for Stess for that painting, he talks about you know, the, the whole idea of it's, it's, it's not before, it's not after, it's, it's this right now, this right here, because this might be it, this might be the last one. So they take do. off and go, you know, kind of deal. And yeah. once again, and you don't just, all right, well, this is the last time, so I'm going to lift this table and throw it across the ring. You know, just, just, you know, just do stuff to fuck with people. Please. It's just, you just realize if there's something you really want to do or you really want to express, let it out, let it do it, because it might be the last time you get to do that. I want to thank Beth and Tim for being so generous with their time and for taking me to their secret bowling alley breakfast spot. We published a killer piece on them in our third issue, which you can get right now at our website. It contains a lot of great photos and an expanded version of this interview. You can also find out when Beth and Tim will be coming to your town to paint a mural or host an art show at timkerr.net. That's Kerr with a K and two R's. Well, that's all we got for episode four of our podcast. We hope you liked this variety approach as much as we enjoyed putting it all together. And we'll see you next time right here on the PMA podcast. Toodaloo.